Reflections on Flannery O'Connor's short story, The Displaced Person, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 2. But what happens is that emotions ooze up through this crevice that has just been opened in the crust of her personality. Emotions that are commingled and confusing and coming from different... uh, different past experiences. And she says, they're all the same, meaning all of those people out there I've had to deal with for the last 20 years since the judge died. And they even robbed his grave. And remembering that, she began to cry quietly. So all of these, you know, down in the psyche, if we haven't attended to them particularly, emotions commingle. And uh, she remembers one of the families that she had hired to help her with the farm had stolen the grave marker from the judge's grave as they left. And the grave marker was was an angel that the judge had seen and thought it reminded him of his wife. And also, he wanted to have a work of art over his grave, so he brought it home. And when he died, it was put on his grave. Now, we're alerted to a couple of things here. One of the things we're alerted to is that uh, at one point, uh, someone who was very fond of her thought that Mrs. McIntyre resembled an angel. And that's a point that we'll come back to uh, in a little while. But there's another point, just emotional, psychological point maybe to make while we're here, and that is uh, something we talked about a good while ago now, which is that hell is unlived life. Half-felt experiences and emotions, uh, in, in Martin Buber's words, deposited layer upon layer as dross in the soul, where they mingle around, commingle with each other, the more, the less experienced, the less really assimilated, the more they commingle with each other and become sentiments. Not something you can really work with, you see, but sentiments. Sentimentality. Now, when the sisters looked in the kitchen one time and saw Babette sitting on the three legged stool with her head in her hands, they realized that she had passions, memories, and longings of which they were unaware. Now, there's a huge difference between passions, memories, and longings and these sentiments. Passions, memories, and longings are are experiences and emotions that have been dealt with, that have been realized, that have been made conscious, and that are continued, and that one continues to attend to. Uh, But one... When these half-lived experiences, half-felt emotions, get dumped as dross in the soul, then they just fester until a crevice on the surface invites them up and, uh, and no telling where they're going to go or what they're going to do, having not seen light of, the light of day for so long. And of these sentiments, <clears throat> usually they've been left alone for the purpose of keeping the paradigm intact, for the purpose of keeping things on the surface more or less tidy. And given that purpose for sublimating them, 
uh, it's no surprise to find out that they generally fall into two categories, self-pity and self-righteousness. And when they come up, they come up in pairs. So Mrs. McIntyre feels self-pity and self-righteousness when this crevice on the surface of her existence opens up. There's a passage in the Apocrypha where Jesus says, if you know what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not know what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. Mrs. McIntyre says, they're all the same. That's the self-righteousness. And then she says, and they even robbed his grave, and she cries quietly. That's the self-pity. But it calls attention to the judge, and the judge is the one who has, who has shaped the personality of Mrs. McIntyre. Something is going to shape us all, and the question is, what is it? I think it was Whitehead who said, uh, or Santayana, I think it was Whitehead, said, uh, we never quite recover from our first loves and our first teachers. Uh, we get that, that imprint, uh, the, the way a duck sees the mother duck and decides it's going to be a duck after all. Um, and we get that imprint. Well, Mrs. McIntyre's was of the judge, <clears throat> which we would think would make her, that, that seems like a unique experience. She married this older man, and he happened to be a judge. He lived a few years, and he died. He, her, other, her other two husbands, she's let them go with no problem at all. One of them's in an uh, asylum somewhere, and one of them's drunk in a hotel room in Florida. That, they, they mean nothing. But the judge lives on on the farm. His influence is still there. He was the shaping experience. And the story says he was a dirty, snuff-dipping courthouse figure. Famous for being rich, his teeth and hair were tobacco-colored, and his face a clay pink pitted and tracked with mysterious prehistoric-looking marks as if he had been unearthed among fossils. Which is Flannery O'Connor's way of reminding us that he's a... He's, he's a... Uh, a member of the old dispensation. He's a representative of the old economy. Uh, he's the old Adam, the old way of doing things. He is, capital J, the judge. And that's the old dispensation, you see. That's the old religion. That's the way it used to be. So she had her formative experience under the influence of the judge. And uh, those who didn't may be excused. <laughs> the next thing we get is a kind of a kind of inscape, a kind of psychological X-ray of Mrs. McIntyre. Distraught as she is, she goes to a place in her house, which it appears uh, is uh, not one she frequents, but in this state of mind, she goes there. And here's what it says. When she had cried all she could, she got up and went into the back hall, a closet-like space that was dark and quiet as a chapel, and sat down on the edge of the judge's black mechanical chair with her elbow on his desk. 
This was a giant roll-top piece of furniture pocked with pigeonholes full of dusty papers. Old bank books and ledgers were stacked in the half-open drawers, and there was a small safe, empty but locked, set like a tabernacle in the center of it. I want to go back over that, because uh, this, I think, is a picture. Flannery O'Connor likes to insert little, uh, little parables or parodies of the church. Remember uh, Red Sammy's in, uh, in uh, Good Man's Hard to Find? and the doctor's waiting room and the and revelation and so on. And this, I think, is her little parody on the, uh, the church preoccupied or any experience which is dominated by the sense of uh, the judge. And it's one that has innumerable pigeonholes stuffed with dusty papers, old bank books and ledgers where everything is you see, the, <clears throat> the judge presides, if I, we can mix all these metaphors, having looked at all this, these pieces of literature over the summer, we have all these metaphors available. Uh, the judge really pre presides over the Monday church, what, what Christopher Fry refers to as the Monday. I, I mean, he gives us the opportunity to refer to as the Monday church, the church that's preoccupied with a world in which grace is finite and there's not enough to go around and uh, if you're going to get what you need of it, you may have to elbow somebody else out of the way. And so you have bank books and ledgers, keeping tallies, uh, getting gold stars, getting black marks, moving your way up, sliding down. Somehow it's mimetic. It's preoccupied. It looks out of the corner of its life out of the corner of the eye. It's all of that, you see. So old bank books and ledgers stacked in half-opened drawers, and there was a small safe, empty but locked. Now that's a wonderful touch. <laughs> Set like a tabernacle in the center of it. Of course, safety and security is what this, this kind of religious cult is all about. It's all built on how to ward off uh, untoward influences. See? It's a it's a security cult, as much as it is a religious tradition, and so in the center of it is not a bold risk. You see, the center of it ought to be this outrageous gamble, right? And the center of it is a safe that is locked but empty. Ah. Oh. What a treasure, what a treasure to have is this little picture of what it really is, what it is, see? She had left this part of the house unchanged since the old man's time. Now that is interesting, because that's what we tend to do. It's a lot easier to put on new gutters and gussy up the outsides and do all the rest of it than to, than to mess with that, you see. That hadn't been changed. It was a kind of memorial to him, sacred because he had conducted his business here. And then there's this wonderful little thing that follows. With the slightest tilt one way or the other, the chair gave a rusty skeletal groan, 
that sounded like him when he complained of his poverty. <laughs> now, for my money, that's the best sentence I've ever read depicting the superego. It's this great black mechanical chair, and if you tilt ever so slightly in one direction or the other, you hear this rusty skeletal groan. <laughs> and you can live your life paralyzed in that chair, you see, because this is the judgment world. And if you, and if you go wrong either way, you see, you hear it. She decides she's going to have to confront Guisac. So she does. And she says, that nigger cannot have a white wife from Europe. You can't talk to a nigger that way. And Guizak says, well, you see, uh, this girl uh, spent three years in the death camps and her whole family was killed. So it doesn't matter to her. And Mrs. McIntyre says, I can't understand how a man who calls himself a Christian could bring a poor, innocent girl over here and marry her to something like that. And he said, well, you understand, she's been in the death camps for three years, and your sacred taboo, which is the distinction between whites and blacks, doesn't amount to anything to her. Now, Remember when Mrs. Shortly died, her daughters and her husband turned to her and said, Where are we going? Where are we going? Where are we going? Well, where, where are we going is to the death camp. As long as we dis are determined to stay in the Monday church, even though all the distinctions are falling, around, are falling down around us. The only way to stay in the Monday church without becoming terribly sacrificial is to have somehow miraculously all of those distinctions, which happen to be arbitrary, stay in place, which they won't. So where we're we going is the death camps, to the extent that we stay in the Monday church and hang on to the hope that we can keep the taboos in place. Mr. Guizak and his and this girl that he wants to bring over, his relative he wants to bring over, they ha they are on the other side of the apocalypse. And they're on the other side of the apocalypse. It doesn't mean anything to them. In the same way, it didn't mean anything to Jesus. All of those distinctions that were overlays on reality. And Jesus just started walking right through the walls. Scripture says he walks through the walls. That's, those are the walls he walked through. He walked right through them. And people were outraged to see him do it. I want to turn to the New Testament just for a second. In the Gospel of Matthew, <clears throat> Jesus says... Uh, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that scandalize and all who do evil. Got to take the scandalizing element out. Can't have that it, because it will turn the kingdom into just more of it. Turn it into the apocalypse. At Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says that scandalizing must occur, inevitably will occur, but alas for the person who scandalizes. The scandalon is the person who draws people into the mimetic vortex, into the, into the little controversy that is so all-encompassing. But there will be scandals. Inevitably, they have to be scandals. <clears throat> the scandalizers will bring about the apocalypse in a world where the artificial distinctions are collapsing.
But on the other hand, there must be scandals. And the reason there must be scandals is because the taboos are, must be, the, the, the artificial distinctions must be broken down or at least made transparent. <clears throat> when Jesus dines with tax collectors or spends his time with the sinners and the outcasts or the publicans and so on, he's creating scandal. Not because he's trying to scandalize into some melodrama, but because he's breaking people's taboos. So Mrs. McIntyre has been scandalized by one of the inevitable scandals. Occasionally I'll bring a story in about a, a mob violence, scene of mob violence. The, the two sort of standard ones now are that one from Northern Ireland, another one from the West Bank. But they're all over. And we read these things or hear about them on the news and we think, those people must be just different people from me. We, we, we see the world the way Mrs. Shortley did. We say, well, they're just not as advanced as we are. Of course, it's not true. And since, once we know it's not true, then the next question is, <clears throat> how is it, to, to, to do it, let me do it this way, how is it that the suburban mind can become the sacrificial mind? What are the, what's the process that transforms the suburban mind into the sacrificial mind? And Flannery O'Connor has left us a document in which she has showed us exactly that process. And for that purpose, this story ought to be studied. This ought to be required reading for every high school junior in America. So here's, we, we see it, we see it, we see it happening to Mrs. McIntyre and to Mr. Shortly later on. They're all the same, she muttered, whether they come from Poland or Tennessee. I've handled herons, and Ringfields, and Shortleys, and I can handle a Gwezak. Now these Herons, Ringfields, and Shortleys are all the people that she's hired. They've all come, they've all left. <clears throat> now watch this. She's been watching Mr. Shortley uh, out doing his wonders on the farm, driving his tractor around. He's out in the field right now, driving his tractor around. She narrowed her gaze until it closed entirely around the diminishing figure on the tractor, as if she were watching him through a gun sight. Okay, this, this is how it happens. This is how the suburban mind becomes a sacrificial mind. The, the gaze narrows on a figure that is diminishing, <clears throat> as if looking through a gun sight. All her life, she had been fighting the world's overflow. And now she had it in the form of a pole. The world's overflow. They, all the extra ones. <clears throat> now, there are too many people in the world, but who in this room thinks you're one of them? <laughs> huh? You're just like all the rest of them, she said. Only smart and thrifty and energetic. But so am I, and this is my place. Now, the way she had maintained the myth, the myth is that they're all the same. One of the myths, one of the aspects of the myth. 
and the way she had maintained that myth in the past was that she had gathered enough evidence su to support the proposition that they were dumb and profligate and lazy. And here comes somebody along who is smart and thrifty and energetic. And it took her a little while longer to get on to him, see. But her myth is capable of doing that. You're, they're all the same. And finally it comes down to the trump card, which is, this is my place. And she stood there, a small, black-hatted, black-smocked figure with an aging, cherubic face. Now, as we've said before, Flannery O'Connor understands that all devils are fallen angels. As Dante said, there's only, the only real energy in the world is love, and all you can do is pervert it. If you want to do something other than go where it's gonna, supposed to take you, you have to pervert it. That's all there is. So all, all the devils are fallen angels. Here she is, suddenly, in the grip of this little mimetic melodrama, a small, black-hatted, black-smocked figure with an aging, cherubic face. Isn't that wonderful? It's like the misfit having little wing buds at his shoulder blades. It's the same sentiment, same thing she's driving at, it seems to me. And she folded her arms as if she were equal to anything. But her heart was beating as if some interior violence had already been done to her. That is to say, the taboo has been violated in her presence. And uh, if it's to be put back together again, it will have to be put back together again consciously, which itself does damage to the taboo. You see? So, so violence to the system under which she's lived her life has already been done. So, but now let's go back. Remember, stage one was narrowing the vision, watching the figure diminish, and then looking at the figure as though in a gun sight. Now we come to stage two. She opened her eyes to include the whole field so that the figure on the tractor was no larger than a grasshopper in her widened view. Now, the task, uh, converting the... the suburban mind into the sacrificial mind, what's required is that the potential victim be converted from a human being into vermin, into a pest. And we just saw it happen. And now he's a grasshopper, a locust, a pest on the crops, something to be knocked off, to be brushed away. The priest comes around, 80-year-old, doddering, priest comes around, kind of living in his own world, but it happens to be a, a world infinitely larger than the one she's living in. He wants to talk about purgatory. Now, purgatory is exactly the thing to talk about at this point. Purgatory is the place where one uh, rids oneself of the mimetic reflexes, where one learns not to, uh, not, not to rely on motivations that are dependent upon mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry. So purgatory is exactly what needs to be talked about here. 
because purgatory is the gradual, systematic apocalypse. The apocalypse is what happens when it hits you in, in the it hits you in the face in the form of death camps, see, or mushroom clouds, or uh, or uh, some brutal uh, urban chaos, see, or what's happening in Lebanon. That's the apocalypse. A gradual journey which would arrive at the same end, which is to be disabused of that whole, that whole construct, is, the, is purgatory. So this is just what she needs, but she doesn't want to talk about purgatory. She listens to the priest talk about purgatory for a while, and then she says, Listen, I'm not theological, I'm practical. I want to talk about something practical. So that, that Polish guy's got to go. And... The old priest said, give him time. He'll fit in. Give him time. And then he says, where's that bird, by the way? Where's that, where's that peacock? And he sees the peacock. And, of course, his attention shifts to the peacock. The cock stopped suddenly and, curving his neck backwards, he raised his tail and spread it with a shimmering, timorous noise. Tears of small pregnant suns floated in a green-gold haze over his head. The priest stood transfixed, his jaw slack. Mrs. McIntyre wondered where she had ever seen such an idiotic old man. Christ will come like that, he said in a loud gay voice, and wiped his hand over his mouth and stood there gaping. And Christ, he said, will come like that. That, 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 that there will be this somewhat odd, but not too odd, creature around the farm. Not like the rest of them, really, but not too different from the rest of them. See? Who all of a sudden, at one moment, point, will reveal something to you that you need revealed to you. It will be the Christ. And he says, Christ will come like that. Christ in the conversation embarrassed Mrs. McIntyre the way sex had embarrassed her mother. Now, you know, there is something to that. There is really something to that. Think of social settings. And think of what is tabooed in social settings, particularly literate social settings. What's tabooed? Any, any talk of Christ or the Christian mysteries. I mean, that is so... Well, I mean, we know it so well. We understand that so well that it would never even enter our minds that we, that we might mention such an awkward subject. The old man didn't seem to hear her. His attention was fixed on the cock who was taking minute steps backward and his head, with his head against his spread tail. The transfiguration, he murmured. The transfiguration. That's the moment when Jesus' three closest friends recognized the, the significance of his life. And then it, it, it got expressed in the narrative story, but it's really the, the narrative depiction of a moment when suddenly they realized how significant this life is. So this is like the transfiguration. It's another revelatory moment. She had no idea what he was talking about. Mr. Gwizak didn't have to come here in the first place, she said. 
He didn't have to come here in the first place, she repeated, emphasizing each word. The old man smiled absently. He came to redeem us, he said, and blandly reached for her hand and shook it and said he must go. <laughs> so there you have the <clears throat> two conversations, two, two realities superimposed. The priest is looking at the peacock, its tail spread, and seeing a vision of Christ in the Christian mysteries. Now, Mrs. McIntyre, her, her, her eyes and her mind are completely beclouded with this little mimetic vortex that she's in. And she doesn't know what he's looking at or gaping at or talking about because she's caught up in the sociodrama by having these two conversations simultaneously it superimposes Mr. Guizak and Christ and it's made absolutely explicit a little bit later on Mr. Shortly returns his wife died the day they drove off and he returns and goes to work again for Mrs. McIntyre and he says he tells her that his wife died and he says I figure that pole killed her. She's seen through him from the first. She known he she known he come from the devil. She told me so. Now, <clears throat> here's a man, like many, who only knows how. If you if, I, if you allow me to put it this way, who only knows how to get himself going using the mimetic system. It's the only system of motivation he knows. Some kind of mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry has to be in play or else he can't get out of bed in the morning. He plays dead. He plays dead, that's right. <laughs> he needs that. And if it's not there of its own accord, he has to concoct it because how else do you get the juices flowing? And this, I think, is, is where, is, is maybe how we can understand Eckhart. Eckhart says this perplexing thing uh, in his writings. He says we must learn to, to act without motivations. And, and, and maybe in the strictest sense of the term that's impossible. Uh, but I think if we understood it in terms of these mimetic motivations, we would, we would be doing some justice to Eckhart's sense of things. We must not rely on those motivations to fuel our lives. Reading from the story, Mr. Shortley said he never had cared for foreigners since he had been in the First World's War and seen what they were like. He said he recalled the face of one man who had thrown a hand grenade at him and that the man had had little round eyeglasses exactly like Mr. Guizak. Now that, a couple things. First is what he says since he had been in the First World's War, which is just a goofy way of talking, but it's also what Flannery O'Connor is doing with that is interesting, it seems to me. The First World is the world uh, that existed before the uh, Revelation, the Incarnation. And the First World's War is all the war, is all the kind of war that happens on that side 
of the Christian dispensation, the first world's war, where people get out there and hit at each other and shoot at each other and bomb each other. The second world's war is the war to overcome the impulses that lead to that. So he's still fighting the first world's war. He's still in the Monday church. And the other interesting nuance, just to compare it with Babette, is that we have an association here. The, 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 Mr. Guizak is associated with somebody that this man fought against in the First World War who threw a hand grenade at him. So we have Mr. Guizak pictured as a petroles, you see, as a thrower of hand grenades, in the same way that the sisters uh, were shocked to think that maybe Babette had been a thrower of petrol bombs. I just think it's an interesting coincidence that both of those are here. But really, it tells something about how Mr. Shortly, how his mind is working to converting his mind into the sacrificial mind. He takes one little detail out of a plethora of details that happens to, to fit Mr. Guizak. Little gold rim eyeglasses. And he seizes on that detail and he connects it and he begins to form a myth with that. And then Mr. Shortley says this, a man that's fought and bled and died in the service of his native land don't get the consideration of one of them like them he was fighting. I asked you, is it right? <laughs> he has fought, bled, and died in the service of his native land. <laughs> the priest comes back for one of his visits. And every time he comes, of course, he tries to get a little catechism in, talks about the sacraments, talks about the doctrines of the church, slips something in to the conversation. For, he was saying, as if he spoke of something that had happened yesterday in town, for when God sent his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, he slightly bowed his head, as a redeemer to mankind, he... Father Flynn, she said in a voice that made him jump, I want to talk to you about something serious. The skin under the old man's right eye flinched. <laughs> he, he kind of snapped out of it there for a second. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, she said and glared at him fiercely, Christ was just another DP. Displaced person in case we hadn't noticed the super <laughs> superimposition of what was happening here. She's been listening to Mr. Shortley go on and on about how, how it is that uh, these, these people come back who've fought and bled and died and aren't treated as well as these people that are just like the ones they fought against. So she says to the priest, I'm going to let that man go. I don't have any obligation to him. My obligation is to the people who've done something for their country, not to the ones who've just come over to take advantage of what they can get. 
and she began to talk rapidly, remembering all her arguments. Now, just to pause on that, remembering all her arguments, I think is an interesting one, because it's a, another symptom that the myth is collapsing. Because if the myth is really in place, you are all the arguments. You know, you don't have to remember them. There's no chance that somehow you'll forget one of them. They're so much a part of you. She's remembering her arguments, meaning that this mythologizing is much more conscious than it can be and still survive. The mythologizing, if, if the, see, what's being mythologized is, is the, the sacrificial operation. And it can only really work if people involved in it did not consciously concoct its reasoning, but uh, were convinced of it because it was atmos atmospheric. As soon as she starts to have to remember all her arguments, the cat's out of the bag. But she's doing that. The priest, however, the priest's attention seemed to retire to some private oratory to wait until she got through. She gets a, goes on her rant, which seems like a seems like a retreat from reality. Uh, but unless one feels particularly robust that day, it's not a bad option, because the mimetic thing is terribly contagious. And sometimes the best you can do is simply retreat to this private place and let the storm pass. The difference between <clears throat> the judge, whose, whose altar has been left intact, and the priest, who are, who are you know, roughly the same generation in a way, is that <clears throat> the judge's what the judge represents doesn't lend itself to a, a reinterpretation. It sits there sort of blocking the way. Whereas the, 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 priest, the priest represents the church. You know, Eliot in, uh, in um, Hippopotamus says the church both eats and sleeps at once. The church somehow in spite of itself, uh, speaks a truth that is capable of reinterpretation. And, and so even though it's, it, it, with all of its goofiness, there's still something there that, that the mystery seeps through somehow, but it's sort of blocked over here with the judge. So I think that's why the, the, the priest figure here is, is treated gently. It's also true of the dean in, in uh, Babette. Uh, the, the dean was a was he was a simple man, but there was something true about him yeah. that it could come through. Often, the the priest here and the judge here in this story come in the same person, and then you got a problem. Uh -huh. uh, but if to the extent that just for some, to make things simple, you see them separate. If your primary shaping experience has been of the judge, when you get to be fifty, and uh, Need a, you know, you need a drink of, uh, of flowing water. You you can be in real trouble. Whereas if your primary experience was of this priest, if he didn't have the judge in him, you get to be fifty. You need a drink of flowing water. There's a re there's something able to be reinterpreted in his, what he conveyed. Um, the acts of you know the, the the need to make it a present experience is 
is always there. But he does let something trickle through that this judge is just blocking it because the safe is locked and empty. She says, I'm going to fire him the first of the month. Mr. Shortley waited. The first of the month came and went, and she didn't fire him. He could have told anybody how it would be. Now, get this. He was not a violent man, but he hated to see a woman done in by a foreigner. He felt that was one thing a man couldn't stand by and see happen. Now, if we're analyzing the conversion of the suburban mind into the sacrificial mind, I'm saying suburban because we're all in that category rather than rural south, right? If that's what we're analyzing, here's one. Somebody clears their throat and says, I'm not a violent man. Duck. Run for cover. Run for cover. He's beginning the process of morally immunizing violent acts by declaring that it's not something he resorts to, dot, 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 unless some real emergency requires that he behave like a man. And there's enough of the uh, lingering um, chivalry mythology left in the Southern experience uh, for him to talk about how it is that he hated to see a woman done in by a foreigner. Now, you remember Mrs. Shortley, who didn't care a bit about what happened to the blacks on this farm, announced with great pride, quote, when the time comes, I'll stand up for the niggers, and that's that. And Mr. Shortley says he hated to see a woman done in by a foreigner. He felt that was one thing a man couldn't stand by and see happen. And that's because, why are they talking this way? The reason they're talking this way is because the gospel has made every other position, has called every other posi position into question. The only legitimate position anymore is the, is the position of the victims or the defenders of the victims which means that all the victimizers have to pose as either victims or defenders of the victim. It's the only way they can keep their mythology reasonably believable, which is to say that Satan, who is the accuser, has to pose as the paraclete, who is the defender. Well, Mrs. McIntyre begins to have these premonitions that Mr. Guizak is taking over. She didn't sleep at night, or when she did, she dreamed about the displaced person. One night she dreamed that the priest came to call and droned on and on, saying, Dear lady, I know your tender heart won't suffer you to turn the poor man out. Think of the thousands of them. Think of the ovens and the boxcars and the camps and the sick children, and Christ our Lord. Everybody turned to di the dying Mrs. Shortley and said, Where are we going, Ma? Where are we going, Ma? Which is Flannery O'Connor's way of saying, If you live in that kind of mimetic spasm, where are you going? And where, you, where are you going is the ovens and the boxcars and the camps and the sick children. And Christ our Lord, he said. 
Mrs. McIntyre said, he's extra. And he's upset the balance around here. Now, she's talking about Mr. Guizak, but the last person mentioned in the dream by the priest is Christ our Lord. She said, he's extra. And he's upset the balance. Remember what the misfit said about Christ? He's thrown everything off. He shouldn't have done it. He's, he's, set a, he's upset the balance, and I'm a logical, practical woman. And there are no ovens here, and no camps, and no Christ our Lord. The ovens, and the boxcars, and the sick children, droned the priest, and our dear Lord. Just one too many, she said. Just one too many. This is a slight nuance on the other one. See, just one too many. This is narrowing it down now. This gets a little bit closer to the Caiaphas notion that, that uh, it's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. It's getting localized. All we do, all, we, can, we can return to normal with one elimination. Mrs. McIntyre screws her courage to the sticking place and goes out to fire Mr. Guizak, who is hosing down the milking barn. And she tries to fire him. She fumbles around. Finally, she gets frustrated. This is my place, she said angrily. All of you are extra. Each and every one of you are extra which is simply stating the ego position without any of the bells and whistles. Just, just straightforward ego position. No little nuances to it, just straightforward. This is my life, and all of you are extra. See? And it's not something that's not in everybody's secret little heart, you know. She's just saying it without any of the nuance. Yah, Mr. Guizak said, and turned on the hose again. <laughs> she wiped her mouth with a napkin she had in her hand and walked off as if she had accomplished what she came for. This is where this story just becomes an amazing, amazing thing. Mr. Shortley's shadow withdrew from the door, and he leaned against the side of the barn and lit half a cigarette that he took out of his pocket. There was nothing for him to do now but wait on the hand of God to strike. Now, there you have it. Wait on the hand of God to strike. The sacrificial moment, the sacrificial blow, must not be one attributable to any person. That, in some measure, is why we have priesthoods. Because the priest, uh, in the priestly garb and under the, uh, and inside the liturgy and so on, 
the priest is simply representative of God. And therefore, the priest can do things uh, uh, that uh, no one else could do, can be the hand of God, can be the sacrificing agent. But everything depends on making sure that the sacrificial event is experienced as an act of God and not the act of a mere member of the community. Because if it's an act of a member of the community, then it will have social repercussions. Somebody will say, hey, that was my cousin you just did that to, or something like that. And it will not have its, its, uh, its galvanizing effect. So it has to be the hand of God. And what he's setting in motion here is the mythology. He's bringing into play the mythology, which is that somehow the hand of God is involved. But he knew one thing. He was not going to wait with his mouth shut. So nothing to do but wait for the hand of God to strike, but he wasn't going to do it with his mouth shut. He starts going around town telling everybody who will listen what's going on, which is that that pole is out there wrapping Miss, Mrs. McIntyre around his little finger and taking over. And she doesn't have enough courage to fire him. And a man just can't stand by and let that happen to a woman. And all the rest of the, of the mythology that gets this thing going. <clears throat> he even said things like that to Mrs. McIntyre. For instance, all men was created free and equal, he said to Mrs. McIntyre, and I risked my life and limb to prove it. Now, that's how he starts out his little discourse. All men was created free and equal. Now, here is somebody who is launching a sacrificial episode, which is the exact opposite of that sentiment. It is based on the exact opposite of that sentiment. But that sentiment is the only one that will fly. And so he's running it up the flagpole, knowing that's the only one you can... You can't carry out this sacrificial act by calling a spade a spade. You've got to get... You've got to provide the mythology. So he said, I risked my life and limb to prove that everybody's crazy. He could gone over there and fought and bled and died and come back on over here to find out who's got my job, exact, just exactly who I've been fighting. It was a hand grenade come that near to killing me, and I seen who throwed it. A little man with eyeglasses just like his. I see how it puts it in place. Since he didn't have Mrs. Shortly to do the talking anymore, he had started doing it himself and had found he had a gift for it. He'd, he had the power of making other people see his logic. Which is to say, everybody is spring-loaded to respond to this kind of melodrama. And if you put it in the right terms, everybody is eager to find an excuse to get into it. It's, it's, we, we would all be shamed uh, to reveal to each other how easily we can get into it. You know, you can stand in line at the grocery store and read all the, uh, the little National Enquirer things and, and think how ridiculous 
Uh, but all those things are selling, and right next to them is People Magazine, and right next to that is Newsweek, and it gets closer and closer and closer. And uh, they're selling some version of the same thing. So he had a gift for it because everybody's ready to be drawn into it. This is what it says in the Epistle of James. So is the tongue, only a tiny part of the body, but it can proudly claim that it does great things. Think how small a flame can set fire to a huge forest. The tongue is a flame like that. Among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a whole wicked world in itself. It infects the whole world. Catching fire itself from Gehenna, it sets fire to the whole wheel of creation. English translation is catching fire from hell sets fire to the whole wheel of creation. Gehenna, as we know, is the Greek translation of Ben-Hinnom, which is where the sacrificial cults uh, operated in ancient Israel, the, the cult of human child sacrifice. So it catches fire from the sacrificial cult and sets fire to the whole wheel of creation, the tongue that begins to scandalize. Well, Mr. Shortly said, if I was going to travel again, it would be to either China or Africa. You go to either of them two places and you can tell right away what the difference is between you and them. You see, what he's looking for is a set of distinctions that will stand up. Go to these other places and the only way you can tell is if they say something. And then you can't always tell because about half of them know the English language. That's where we made our mistake, he said letting all them people onto English. There'd be a heap less trouble if, if everybody only knew his own language. <laughs> now, what is she doing? Flannery O'Connor is doing something marvelous. She's showing that what's involved here is a need for distinctions that are indelible, can't be erased, that you can live by, know that they will stand up, And he mentions his wife, and his, his uh, comment of approval for his wife was, you couldn't put nothing over on her. You couldn't put nothing over on her. That's his way of admiring her. You see, the one who played the game so well, the game of looking out of the corner of your eye, was so clever and agile at maneuvering through the mimetic entanglement that you couldn't put nothing over on her except life, you see, except the whole, missing the whole point. But when he mentions his wife, Sulk, the young black, says that he had never known a finer white woman. And Mr. Shortley chokes up. Now remember, Mr. Shortley, like Mrs. McIntyre, is one who has, uh, but ever, ever, but slenderly known himself, as as uh, his daughter said of King Lear. And so he has all these, these uh, half experienced uh, feelings and emotions and experiences in in him too. And likewise, they fall, they they are sentimentalized, and they fall typically into the category of self righteousness and self-pity and so on. And so he chokes up. 
Mr. Shortley turned in the opposite direction and worked silently for a while. After a few minutes, he leaned up and tapped the colored boy on the shoulder with the handle of his shovel. For a second, he only looked at him while a great deal of meaning gathered in his wet eyes. Then he said softly, Revenge is mine, saith the Lord. Now, you see how it all comes together in some strange way? <clears throat> now, the point of the passage which says revenge is mine is that the, the, the Bible is saying, don't do it. God is saying, hey, revenge, leave that to me. Forget it. But he's using it to justify in the same way that all men was created equal is being used to justify its opposite. But more generally, he's converting grief into grievance. When we studied Homer's Iliad, we, we studied Achilles as the person who's, who was the most facile at turning grief into grievance. But it's a tendency that we have. Ha not knowing how to deal with emotions very well, here's a man who knows how to get, who relies for motivation on the mimetic system. So when he feels grief, grief doesn't do anything with the mimetic system. Grief takes one into one's own depths, takes one into another world, if you let it. But if you can turn it into grievance, then you can be back in the saddle again. You can get the energy going again. You can be back in the conflict again. Simone Weil said, the false God turns suffering into violence and the true God turns violence into suffering. So he's turning grief into grievance. The New Testament is the story of what happens if you go the other direction. New worlds open up. But if you, if you turn grief into grievance, then you're back into the old one. So he's been going around town telling everybody about Mrs. Shortley, I mean Mrs. McIntyre's uh, inability to fire this man. And now Mrs. McIntyre is feeling guilty. It's interesting the use of the term guilt because it's really a social phenomenon. She's feeling guilty because she sees her, li her, her life through other people's eyes and she recognizes other people think she's making a mistake. So she begins to feel guilty. She couldn't stand the guilt any longer, so she goes out to try again to fire Mr. Guizak. <clears throat> and this with this begins the sacrificial denouement of the story, which is, I think, one of the most remarkable things I've ever read. She goes out to the machine shed where Mr. Guizak is working on the small tractor. And the, the story says, the countryside seemed to be receding from the little circle of noise around the shed. Now, just as an intro to this ritual, notice how the world, it's as though almost uh, a little envelope is being uh, placed around the event. The world recedes, and this little event now, this little circle of noise is cut, is cut off from the surrounding world. And in there, the cult ritual will take place. Under 
the very difficult modern circumstances uh, which uh, it, it must negotiate in order to unfold. Mr. Gleizak is under the tractor, his legs sticking out. She could not see his face, which is always a helpful uh, coincidence. She could not see his face, only his feet and legs and trunk sticking impudently out from the side of the tractor. Of all the things she resented about him, she resented most that he hadn't left of his own accord. So here's the, the scene. Mr. Shortley got on the large tractor and was backing it out from under the shed. He seemed to be warmed by it as if its heat and strength sent impulses through him that he obeyed instantly. He headed it toward the small tractor, but he braked it on a slight incline and jumped off and turned back toward the shed. Mrs. McIntyre was looking fixedly at Mr. Gwizak's legs lying flat on the ground now. She heard the brake on the large tractor slip, and looking up, she saw it move forward, calculating its own path. Now, isn't that something? Calculating its own path, like the hand of God. The mythology that helps to immunize this thing. It slipped. The brake slipped. Later, she remembered that she had seen the Negro jump silently out of the way as if a spring in the earth had released him and that she had seen Mr. Shortley turn his head with incredible slowness and stare silently over his shoulder and that she had started to shout to the displaced person but that she had not. She had felt her eyes and Mr. Shortley's eyes and the Negro's eyes come together in one look that froze them in collusion forever. And she had heard the little noise the pole made as the tractor wheel broke his backbone. Now, isn't that astounding? Isn't that astounding? It has to operate so surreptitiously so as to, to allay as much of the moral discomfort as, as one can. And it has, to, it has to talk of the hand of God and, uh, and the, the mechanism of doing something of its own accord and little mistakes and accidents like brake slipping. But none of that really matters. In the end, it's finally the silence of those who watch it and let it happen. It's really the silence that condemns everybody here. Everybody is silent, and they all watch it. But notice this. 
their eyes, all their eyes came together in one moment and froze them in collusion forever. Now, when the sacrificial cult is really operating, it doesn't freeze them in collusion forever. It gathers them into a community for a while. What's interesting about this story is that no community comes together. There is a sense of collusion, but immediately the community of the victimizers dissolves and they go in every direction. But before we get to that, Mrs. McIntyre faints. She goes into the house. She faints again. Time passes. She stumbles back out. An ambulance has arrived. Mr. Guizak's body was covered with the bent bodies of his wife and two children and by a black one which hung over him, murmuring words she didn't understand. At first she thought this must be the doctor, but then, with a feeling of annoyance, she recognized the priest who had come with the ambulance and was slipping something into the crushed man's mouth. So a sacrament is taking place at the moment of the sacrifice. She felt she was in some foreign country where the people bent over the body were natives. Now, that is one of the most amazing lines in English literature to me. A hundred thousand years from now, allow me to romanticize here for a second. A hundred thousand years from now, People could look back at that line and say, that's the point at which a creative genius noticed something. What she noticed was that there is more community gathering power in the community that identifies with the victim than there is in the community gathered by uh, the community made up of the victimizer. That night, Mr. Shortley left. Salk had a sudden desire to see the world, and he moved to the southern part of the state. And old Astor had to leave because there was nobody around to help him. Mr. Mrs. Short, Mrs. McIntyre is left alone. So the line says, she felt she was in some foreign country where the people bent over the body were natives. The people gathered around, identifying with the victim, are the New Testament people. The New Testament is the community of people that gather around the cultural victim. And this line implies strongly that that is the real community gathering power and that the other one, based on the sacrificial cult, is waning in comparison. It almost prophesies a moment in cultural history when the capacity to gather a real community together will be stronger in the uh, New Testament community than in the sacrificial cult. <coughs> Mrs. McIntyre develops a nervous affliction. She goes to the hospital. She comes back home. She lives alone. Nobody comes to see her. Not many people remembered to come out to the country to see her except the old priest. 
He came regularly once a week with a bag of breadcrumbs, and after he had fed these to the peacock, he would come in and sit by the side of her bed and explain the doctrines of the church. She was a displaced person. She was a displaced person. And the the little image of feeding breadcrumbs to the peacock is is the little Eucharistic image at the very end of this. Well, it's just amazing that this story exists in this form. I mean, what a study it is of how the sacrificial system works under under the modern circumstances. And to me, what promise is in that line uh, which says that the people bent over the body seem to be the natives in the country now, and that she who had just participated in the sacrificial cult, was an exile. This concludes Reflections on the Displaced Person. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.